Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over a hundred years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Oral History Institute, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, Historic Homes of Waco. The story was that it had been pulled by a team of horses and that they had left all the furniture in the house and they had just moved it all the way out. Dr. Ken Haferty takes us on a tour of Waco's famous houses. The headline refers to the building as the Cottonland Castle, which is kind of strange when you look at it. Mr. Abiel had nothing to do with cotton and lesser-known homes. Our assumption has been the significance of shotgun houses is racial, and it may well be that the significance is economic instead. And now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio all right, Stephen, welcome back to the studio. I've got another guest for us. So yeah, Randy, I can't believe it took us this long to have Dr. Ken Haferteep on, or Dr. H, as they call him, Dr. H. Uh, from the M- Department of Museum Studies at Baylor University. He chairs that department. He's published several books, German Material Culture in Texas, Guides for Fredericksburg and Gillespie County, on and on and on. He's a historian also, so we have a lot in common. I met Ken years ago serving together on the Historic Waco Foundation board. And so uh, Ken's fantastic. And his most recent book that'll be of great interest to the folks listening is a book that he wrote on historic homes in Waco. And Mm. he did a great job. We'll talk about why he did a great job as we go through tonight. But a lot of research photographs and and I think it's a wonderful book and we haven't really talked about historic homes in town except maybe some haunted ones we did talk (laughs) about haunted homes and so maybe I don't know if Ken will get into that or not but Ken welcome howdy so Ken what makes homes in Waco historic homes unique and why did you feel like researching them part of the thing that I had to struggle with really was the fact that Waco's homes have evolved style wise and in terms of their arrangements and their their perks and all um, in pretty much the same way that any American city has so that there's a sense of typicality there. So I think for a lot of architectural historians, they would sort of look at me crosswise at the notion of doing a book on Waco because it's just another small Texas city and where's the creativity, where's the, the originality? And I think the answer to that is that, A, you have to think about it in terms of not stylistic creator, someone as original as Frank Lloyd Wright, say, Mm -hmm. or Walter Gropius, or whoever you choose, but to look at it at the individuality of individual houses and creativity at that level. And also, I thought that it was a good opportunity to look at 
Waco and its houses as a lens for understanding the community. And a lot of times, books on architectural history can be very much focused on the building and not the people who lived in them. Hmm. And because of that, it, 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 uh, a lot of times architectural histories will, li- will leave people flat or the, the buildings tend to be the ones that are at the very upper end of society, hmm. that it's the wealthiest individuals who build the nicest houses. As a result, architectural histories tend to be skewed towards the upper class. And so that leaves a lot of historians dissatisfied. How is this purporting to be about all of Waco or about all of any American city? So one of the things that that was driving this book was trying to find things that represented all different levels of society and to find houses that represented the very substantial African-American community in Waco, immigrants into Waco. I would have loved to have found some houses pre-1940 of Mexican-Americans in Waco, although unfortunately the houses of that period, the 1920s and 1930s that Mexican immigrants lived in, have pretty much been swept away. Hmm. So the thing that makes this such an unusual take on an American city is that it's far more inclusive than a lot of architectural histories tend to be. Yeah, it's kind of interesting you say that because when I first heard you were coming on, I was thinking about historic homes and my my mind goes to like Castle Heights or other areas over there. But yeah, I didn't think about all the other historic areas maybe that don't get as much credit because they're not super fancy and Mm -hmm. super big. Yeah. Well, I'll ask a question, Ken, because... I think you already indicated preservation tends that way as well, trends that way as well, towards not preserving everything, but preserving those things that represented an upper-class sort of structure. But I will ask you, you had to come up with a definition of what's historic in in terms of your book, as far as what goes in and what goes out. And so did you kind of come up with a working definition of how you determine what went in? At some point, the press said you had to to draw a line, so... Mm -hmm. Well, the the sort of simplest way of drawing that line is to follow the National Register of Historic Places criteria, which is 50 years old, which of course means that I'm historic. So (laughs) that would mean that this would have buildings up to, let's see, that would be 1969. And the book does not go that far. And really what I've done is buildings from the very beginnings of Waco up to World War II, the outbreak of World War II. So that takes it to 1940 or 41. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One of my main sources for finding out about people who lived in houses that were not the well-documented elite houses was the U.S. Census. And I looked at every U.S. Census from 1850 up to the very last one that's publicly available, which is 1940. And so A census was taken, obviously, in 1950, but it hasn't been released to scholars or the general public yet. So 1940 was as far as I could get that sort of window into who was living in a house. So that was one reason. One of my favorite sources was about to go bye-bye, and so I had to deal with that. The other thing is that there were big changes brewing in the way that homes were built. After World War II, it's practically a new world. Part of that is the development of new subdivisions like Levittown in New York and and various other communities where 
where new communities are being created wholesale, and also the developer was, was building all of the houses. And so it moved in the direction of the mass production of houses. And that's something that's significant as well. I mean, that's where the greatest generation started mm-hmm. out their lives when they came back from World War II. They'd get married, uh, have kids, and they'd have a little house in suburbia. And that might just be their starting point of jumping off. So it's significant in its own right, but it was also a pretty clear stopping point for this volume. And the fact that so much of the residential architecture after World War II was done on a mass-produced level meant that really you're going to need a different method to intelligently discuss that. So it seemed to me that that was a point to say, we're going to end here, and then someone else gets the struggle with the houses after World War II. You know, when you were saying, like, these mass-produced houses, the first thing that comes into my mind is Edward Scissorhands. You know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. the neighborhood. That's mm-hmm. right. It's yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. So he has the old house on the hill, and it's, like, super cool and different, and then all these very much the same houses all around there. Yes. I, t- I totally get what you're, you're saying, and I feel like the older homes have so much character and individuality that these newer homes, like the house that I'm in in my neighborhood, it's not super new, but if you go about a block away, there's the same exact house just set another direction. And so that's not very individual. It doesn't say who I am as a person, right? That's true. And in a lot of these historic houses, what I was interested in was that what you're seeing is a potential homeowner meeting an architect who has a particular vision as well, so that there's kind of a dialogue, uh, a back and forth. And so you can see houses by a wide variety of of architects in this book, and they're not all the same. Mm -hmm. In fact, sometimes, you know, you'll hear someone in Waco saying, oh, I can tell that that building is by architect X because, and list off a couple of the leading features. And it's like, well, not only, not only did that architect design things that looked nothing like that, there were other architects who would be very happy to do a version of that for <laughs> you, too. So that, that you know, from, from both, both ends of that, it's dangerous to attribute a design to an architect simply based on the stylistic characteristics. So let's do a little bit of a tour. I know we'll get to some of the more popular houses that people know. So I want to start because I didn't even think about this till the podcast started. What are some of the lesser known areas of Waco where people could go to see architecture that may not fit the the mold of the castle or something Mm. iconic that people think about? One area that I really wanted to have well represented in the, the book was East Waco. That's kind of a complicated story because in modern day Waco, when people hear East Waco, they tend to think of the African-American community. And that is true to a degree, but it wasn't the primary African-American neighborhood, that actually that was between Waco Drive and Bosque and 5th and 9th Street. And unfortunately, that community got wiped out by urban renewal and was basically replaced with public housing projects. Really, the only surviving artifact of that thriving African-American neighborhood is the New Hope Baptist Church, which is a wonderful building, but it just reminds you that there, were, there was a whole congregation that was living around that, mm-hmm. that church, and there's no trace of that or the college that used to be there. So almost by default, East Waco ends up being a very important 
place in African-American history in Waco. And that does go back quite a ways, although not to the beginning. In the very beginning, East Waco had plantations and the plantation houses that surrounded it. It had early Waco industry. And it was only towards the end of the 19th century and the very beginning of the 20th century that you get houses being built near the river. And those tend to be white. That was a white neighborhood. However, what happened in the 1880s was the creation of Paul Quinn College, which was historically black college, still is, though it's now moved to Dallas. What I discovered was that in the neighborhood around Paul Quinn, a number of historic houses survive, not as in good a state of repair as houses in other areas of the city, but by golly, they're still there. And so I felt that it was very important to document those while they're still here. And who knows, maybe people can read about them in the book and say, wow, I'd like to take care of a, a little piece of, of Waco history like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping that there's a preservation homily worked into the pages of the book, even if it's not explicit. Say they're up there around Garrison Street and they're looking for these homes. They're listening in their car to this. You got some addresses of things they ought to swing by and see? Well, one thing that you can do is simply drive down Elm Street, heading away from the river, and you're almost to the Paul Quinn former campus. There's a house at the corner, which is a late Victorian house that was owned by and built by Hezekiah Johnson and his wife. He had, I think it was something like five or six daughters, and they had lived on the other side of the Paul Quinn campus. But in the early 20th century, they decided to move to Elm Street right across from the Paul Quinn campus. And it was if, as if it were a message to his daughters, you are going to college. <laughs> and by golly, five of them ended up becoming school teachers. He had been uh, an employee of Lumberyards, including uh, ultimately the, the Cameron Company Lumberyard, their, their branch in, in East Waco. He was certainly not uh, well-to-do. It's, it's one of those cases where you might even think of him as being, you know, striving towards the middle class. But what he was able to do as he was making deliveries of pre-made doors and windows and other types of lumber to houses all over Waco, he was getting to see what was being built and could pick up ideas of what was trendy and current in contemporary Waco houses. And presumably as an employee of the Cameron Company, he was probably able to uh, get perhaps a little discount in terms of <laughs> lumber from the, the lumber yard. I think it's quite likely that he built that house himself. Or if you go further down past the campus, there's the house of Horace Randall, who was an African-American carpenter. And kind of mind-boggling to think, but here's this very nice bungalow. It's the type of bungalow that's called side-gabled bungalow because the roof is sloping down towards the street. And again, this is someone who was, was able to give himself a nice house out of the fact that that was his trade, to build houses for folks. But right next door to him was uh, John Kirk, who was the second principal of the School for African Americans in Waco when A.J. Moore died, and he was the, the first and legendary principal of that school. He was succeeded by John Kirk, and, and Mrs. Kirk uh, taught at Paul Quinn as well. So it's interesting because you, you see working-class African Americans, but you also see people who are educators at both the the high school level and at the collegiate level. 
So it was really important to me to try to find those stories. Probably the most interesting story in terms of areas that you wouldn't necessarily go looking for interesting historic houses was the house of Dr. George Connor, who was one of the earliest African-American doctors in Waco. And he was, in addition to being a doctor, was invested in real estate and also was the music director at New Hope Baptist Church. And so he was a very important figure in Waco's African-American community. And in the teens, he decided to build a two-story house on 12th Street, basically backing up to where the Cotton Palace grounds were. Amazingly enough, that house still stands on 12th Street today. He wanted to build a large house, anticipating that he would be outlived by his wife and that a large house could be used as a boarding house. It would be a place where she had a home where she could also rent out rooms to boarders and generate income. So I think he had a, a strategy for the era before Social Security of how to take care of his, his wife. Ironically, that the, the wife with whom uh, he was living passed away. <laughs> he remarried a much younger woman, and she definitely outlived mm -hmm. him. The, but the striking thing about that house is it ended up having a role in the uh, visit to Waco by Marian Anderson, who was the you know, famous contralto, she was invited to perform at Baylor University in Waco Hall by Dr. A.J. Armstrong, the chair of the English department. This is pretty interesting. Basically, it was performed before a segregated audience, the main floor being entirely for whites, but there was a small area for African Americans in the mm. balcony of Waco Hall. But the problem for Dr. Armstrong was, well, okay, Baylor's going to let her perform on stage, but where can she stay? Waco, like really any city in the American South in the 1930s, no hotels would accept African Americans. So Dr. Armstrong appealed to Dr. J. Newton Jenkins, the pastor of New Hope Baptist Church. Was there a house that Ms. Anderson could stay in while she was in Waco. He responded, we'll put her up in one of our finest homes. Hmm. And remarkably, in between that invitation and the concert, Dr. Connor passed away. And so it just sort of threw the whole thing into upheaval again. And Dr. Armstrong end ends up having to write a condolence letter to the new widow, Jeffy, but also saying, can Ms. Anderson still stay with you? <laughs> And Jeffy responded and said, yes, that, that will be perfectly fine. And in Jeffy Connor's papers at the Texas Collection at Baylor, you can see not only did she get to, to hear Marian Anderson perform at Waco Hall, but Miss Anderson came back and performed at the, the State Fair Music Hall after World War II. And Jeffy's papers include her program from that concert. So mm -hmm. she got to hear a world-famous contralto twice. So it's just interesting stories like that, that that were really exciting to find. Mm. I'm looking at the cover of your book. We had Janice Fidal in from the Elvis House, which is, of course, here on the cover of your book. You know, there were those kind of gems that you would find that were even off your radar. I would imagine going from census data to try to figure out if it's still extant, because you're, you're just doing houses that are still existing. <laughs> yes. What are some other gems that, that you stumbled upon that you're especially proud of that are in the book? Actually, what's known as the Elvis House now is a very good example of 
that. It's interesting as a house because of Elvis Presley's having stayed there while he was in basic training at Fort Hood, just to the south of Waco. But it's interesting, too, because of Eddie Fidal's parents being Syrian immigrants to Waco. And that really opened up, you know, the story of immigrants from the Middle East coming in and finding their way to, to, to Waco. So I, I saw that as being doubly valuable because, you know, Elvis is a nationally significant person. But it's interesting on a more mundane level to see these immigrants coming to, to Waco. And both that and the house next door to it were Fidal family houses. And the one that's now the Elvis house is a cottage from the 1920s. Uh, but next door is a classic bungalow. And basically it was the two Fidal brothers who, who mm. built those side by side. So that was interesting. It was also good to find some of the other immigrants who I didn't realize were in Waco and left houses behind them. There's a house on 10th Street at Clay, which is a a very nice one-story Victorian house. At first, I thought it had been built by an Italian immigrant named Joseph Pinto. I believe he was involved in shoemaking, which a, a lot of Italian immigrants were. Very near towards the end of the creation of the book, I discovered that the house was even older than I thought it was, and that it had actually been built by a German immigrant carpenter, Konrad Schneider. And, and that turned into a twofer as well, because it was first uh, the home of German immigrants, and then very soon thereafter of Italian immigrants. It was also interesting to me studying the immigration of uh, Russian and Polish Jews into Waco. And there's been a very strong Jewish community in Waco almost from the, the beginning. And probably the house that's most associated with that is one of our grandest houses, which is what's known as the McGill House for Louis McGill of Goldstein McGill Department Store. But it turns out that that was actually kind of his late life house, kind of celebrating his huge success. And he was not the builder of the house. It turns out that his partner, Isaac Goldstein's house, also survives in Waco, just a few blocks from where the Miguel house is, and that they had both lived uh, even closer into town in smaller Victorian houses. So to be able to uncover that and learn a little more about these these immigrants coming to America, coming to, to Texas, and their experiences here and their success was quite interesting. And one even earlier in date than that was the Levinsky house. Ah, the Levinsky House. This house was built by Jacob and Sarah Levinsky around 1887. And the, the, the poor house was on the verge of falling down a couple of years ago. In fact, it had been red-tagged by the city. It didn't even have a lock on the, on the door. The Waco, City of Waco's Historic Landmark and Preservation Commission put a moratorium on demolishing the house. And at the last minute... A buyer came in and bought it, restored the exterior, fixed up the interior, but it was amazing to have any of it saved at all. But it turned out that the Levinskys were a family that ran a jewelry store on the square in downtown Waco and had been very successful in the 1880s. And this this house built way out at 19th Street and Morrow was the, the fruits of all of that, that hard labor. So finding stories like that was was a a really delightful aspect of the researching the book. So before we get too far away, you said the McGill House is like really noteworthy. What makes it so noteworthy? The McGill House was one of a pair of houses that were built side by side on Columbus Avenue in 1910. 
and they were both designed by a new architectural firm, Scott & Pearson, which consisted of Milton W. Scott and T. Brooks Pearson. They had both been practicing individually in Waco, and they were together for just a brief period of time, maybe two or three years, but in that time were very productive. The McGill House is perhaps the more interesting of the two, although they're both impressive in their own ways. The, the McGill House is one that is largely neoclassical or classical revival, but with things like the flat roof and the dramatic overhanging eaves and, and pronounced brackets that seem to allude to the Prairie School of Chicago in the mid-19th century. So it's this interesting blending of neoclassical traditionalism and prairie-style progressivism. So it's, it's a very impressive house. To the east of that house was the Sheer Callan House, which was quite fully developed example of the colonial style, as it would have been called in 1910. We would say colonial revival now, but red brick, five bays, centered door, looking very much like a mansion from the 18th century. Hmm and with a very impressive staircase that rises in the center of the room and then splits into both directions. It's referred to as an imperial staircase, and it does have that sort of impressive feel to it. Both of those houses were used in a setting as a drug rehabilitation center, and when that center moved away, they wanted to sell both houses at once. The result of that was that the McGill house was restored very nicely and turned into a bed and breakfast, but the Sheer Callan house was demolished to make way for a garden, which, which is quite sad because it was equally significant to the McGill house. But I, I guess that McGill is such a brand in Waco that, that perhaps that helped in the decision to restore the house. Is this the house that's over by the Columbus Avenue Church there? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Okay. Does it have a bowling alley in the basement? It most definitely does. <laughs> uh, that is true. Sometimes you can hear stories about Waco houses that are a little on the wacky side, but that is not one of them. The bowling alley is against the front wall of the house, and it's, it's a very large basement. So presumably it was built with the notion of having some uh, lovely parties down there, including <laughs> some athletic events. Since you've introduced it into evidence, I know Randy's going to ask you about <laughs> wacky stories that you've heard about <laughs> yes. Waco houses. So I'm, I'll just ask it for him. <laughs> oh, man, I wanted to. So tell us some wacky <laughs> stories about Waco houses. <laughs> well, probably the strangest story that I've ever heard about a Waco house is a claim that was made that a particular very well-to-do Wacoan moved the house of his late father from Midtown Austin Avenue out to Castle Heights. This was supposedly done in the 1920s. And the story that was actually printed in the, the paper in the 1960s, because the fellow was still alive, was that it had been pulled by a team of horses and that they had left all the furniture in the house and they had just moved it all the way out. Just, <laughs> and that they, they had moved it down Franklin Avenue because they didn't want to take up Austin Avenue. So there's this elaborate story, which I think is probably one of the most fabulous pranks ever played on the newspapers in, in Waco in the <laughs> 1960s. If you think about 1920s Waco, when people are zipping around in automobiles and trucks, there was a very large skyscraper that had been built 10 years earlier in downtown Waco. 
No, <laughs> uh, they, they, they did not use a horse-drawn carriage to, to move anything. And in fact, the acid test was one of my other favorite tools goes along with uh, the U.S. Census is Sanborn fire insurance maps. These were maps that started after the Civil War, but they were color-coded maps to tell you if a house was built of wood, brick, stone, iron, what have you, as a way of assessing its flammability. Also, was it covered with shingles? Was it covered with slate or tiles, which are less flammable? So the Sanborn fire insurance maps came back every decade or two. There was one in, in Waco in 1899, some supplemental ones, but not the whole city in 1916, and then the whole city in 1926. And the interesting thing is, on the 1926 Sanborn maps, you can see both the new house in Castle Heights and the old house. It had, it had had its porches removed, but the, the main part of the house was still there. So that's kind of interesting, seeing that sort of story. And by golly, it was in the paper, and you know the owner himself told this story. And I think somewhere in heaven, he is just gleeful that this story still gets repeated, that he managed to prank Waco with uh, this outlandish story. Sometimes the tales get taller as time goes on. Too. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. You, you were talking about the Miguel house. One thing I love about the book is the other end of architecture, working class architecture and the shotgun houses, that you know, which were so prevalent in the early part of the 20th century, but there's so few left to look at now uh, i mean very true the the opportunity to get to document and share some of those must have been special as well that's getting back to the question of what surprised me about that as an architectural historian i've been trained to think of shotgun houses as particularly representative of african americans and there's an argument that you can trace shotguns from africa to the caribbean to new orleans and then disseminated throughout the american south the Interesting thing about shotgun houses in Waco is that you could find them in African-American neighborhoods, to be sure, but you could also find them in working-class areas where they would be rented to working-class or poor whites, and also to immigrants. So our assumption has been that the significance of shotgun houses is racial or ethnic, and it may well be that the significance is economic instead, that it's the, the economic class, uh, socioeconomic rather than race. There's a, a great group of houses on 6th Street, very near St. Paul's Episcopal Church, that has one pure shotgun house, which is to say three rooms of equal size, one behind the other, with no hallway and just a door between each rooms and with a front porch. There are two others right beside it that are slightly enlarged so that you have a porch that wraps around a little bit, uh, giving it a hint of Victorian style. And that was an area just south of Waco Drive, and the heart of Waco's African-American community was just on the other side of Waco Drive. There was an, a library that was set aside for African-Americans. The African-American school was actually on the, the south side of Waco Drive. So they were living very closely together, but for the first couple of decades, those houses were lived in by poor, what we would call poor whites, or by immigrants. Though by the time you get to 1940, the African-American community had expanded to where they were rented to African-Americans. So it's one of those things where you have to look not just at who were the original occupants, but, but watch the story of the house and how, how the neighborhood changed over time. 
So allow me to be a little bit ignorant, and I think you kind of described this, but what makes a shotgun house a shotgun house? That's a good question, and it gets back to some of the, the folklore that we have about house types. There are a lot of folks who use the term shotgun house because of the old saying that because the doors were lined up from room to room to room, that basically you could fire a shotgun through the front door and all of the bullets would pass through the house and out the back door without hitting any wall. That assumes that the primary thing of a shotgun house is the doors lined up. <laughs> and that's not the case. Mm. The, the point of the shotgun house is that there are rooms in a sequence, one after the other. And because it's such a small house, you don't really need a hallway or a, a passage. So it's a very economical way of giving three rooms or maybe four rooms to to a family. So it's like a house that doesn't have any sort of like a hallway or connecting sort exactly. of architecture. Yeah, yeah. One of the other surprising things that came out of doing the research for this book was looking through the, the papers of Dr. George Connor, the African-American physician at the Texas Collection. And one of the papers that survived, he was getting ready for his taxes for McLennan County. I believe it was in the early 1930s. And he was listing all the properties that he owned. It included several houses that were three rooms or four rooms. And I thought, oh, my God, he was a landlord. <laughs> he was, you know, he was actually owning shotgun houses, one may assume, for those three-room houses, and renting them out. And, in fact, one of the other shotgun houses in the book is just around the corner on, basically, it's around Ross and 11th Street, very close by Dr. Connor's own house. So it may be that that's one of the houses that he owned. So it's a much more complicated story than we sometimes assume. And there were individuals like Dr. Connor who were doing remarkable things in Waco. Ken, can you answer the question, what is the oldest? I know there's a few candidates for that, but I don't know if in your research, if you're able to answer the question, what is the oldest residential structure extant still standing in Waco? No. <laughs> I wish that I could. I tried real hard. At the end of the day, my feeling is, even though I would have liked to have been able to give very concrete dates to the earliest houses, it's more important to know the period that they're from mm -hmm. than this one's the oldest and this one is second best or whatever. You know, sometimes people can get very, very possessive about their, their houses and, you know, mine's earlier than yours or, you know, my, which of course for some people means mine's more historic than yours. Mm -hmm. I, I think that really houses are happier when you get their date right rather than, than prove that they're insanely old. <laughs> The challenge about those very earliest houses, well, one challenge, of course, is that the records are, are comparatively sketchy. And the two oldest properties that I was able to come across in Waco were, uh, they're now within the city limits of Waco, but they were actually outside the, the city limits because you know, they, were, they were actually farming and farming with African-American slaves. So a lot of my tried and true friends fail me on that one, specifically the Waco City Directories, which didn't start until 1876. So that was a decade after the Civil War and a decade after freedom. So that was not very helpful. There were no Sanborn maps in the antebellum era. The U.S. Census was my one straw that I tended to hang on to like a, like a lifeline. Even there, that only happens every 10 years. So uh, as a result, all I could, could claim for the earliest two houses were 
1850s. Just out of the fact that one has to come before the other, one, one house ends up being listed as in the one position, houses number 1 to 120. But it's not until you get to the Earl Harrison house that you get something with a reasonable assumption of the date. And even there, it's one of those flukes of the fact that we know that Mr. and Mrs. Earl came to Waco in 1857 and started to work on building a house, and that Mr. Earl died in 1859. So the assumption is that, that it was completed before he passed away, so that, that 1858 is the, the generally agreed-upon date for that house. There's a fairly narrow window for that. And ironically, out of his early death, Eliza Earl ended up becoming the biggest slave owner in McLennan County in the 1860 census. And usually women don't show up in the slave schedule because their husbands are the property owners, and so their names will be there. And here's Eliza Earl, who has something like 61 slaves in 1860. So that was really quite remarkable. So that house is still standing? Yes, although it took a little journey. (laughs) The Earl Harrison House, as it's known now, was originally built on South 4th Street. It's very near to where I-35 is today and very near to where the Earl Napier Canard still is, which is just on the edge of the interstate as well. That- it's by in and out if you need a reference. <laughs> ah, yeah. I wasn't going for any product placement, so. Yes, it's between, okay. it's between in and out and Chipotle. <laughs> They're parking lot. I think we should talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room that a certain popular Waco couple is buying up some old houses. Are there any in particular that you find historically significant? So the two I'm thinking of are the castle and then the fort house? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is definitely big news. Certainly the Chip and Joanna Gaines story is a tremendous success story and very positive for Waco in terms of giving a good image to Waco and making people think that Waco would be a nice place to visit. And that's good for the museums in the Waco community and the the other attractions. Their incredible success has also allowed them to purchase some significant properties. The castle is certainly very significant, and it's kind of interesting in the sense that the castle It's really kind of a hard luck building. It just seems like people want to to live there. They want to fix it up or restore it or what have you. And that sometimes it doesn't work out for the best. And most recently, there was an attempt made to buy the house and restore it. But that that ended up stopping and had basically been sitting there mothballed for the better part of, I guess it was close to two years. So, you know, that's kind of concerning when you have what looks to be a construction zone with an old house in the middle of it and the original windows out and the original door out. and boards up in their place. One thing that I was actually very grateful for was that I had stockpiled photos of the castle on my computer before the restoration started because all the pictures in the book I have taken and they're all of houses that are visible from the street. So nobody has to trespass to see any (laughs) of these houses. But I did not want to have a picture of the castle in its current condition with a shoot for the uh, (laughs) debris that had been left there for two years. It was documenting the current state of the house, for better or for worse. At the same time, I did not like it because I hope that each photo allows you to imagine without too much effort what the house looked like originally. Mm -hmm. My selection of houses tended to skew towards ones that had been 
treated well, restored, because that makes it easier for the reader to see, oh, this is what a colonial revival house is. This is what mm. a Tudor revival house is. I think that the, the castle, which was the Abile house, is one that's so famous. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a registered Texas historic landmark. It has the marker right out front. I think that it's clear to everyone, including Chip and Joanna Gaines, that this is a property that needs to be treated with a great deal of respect. I hope that they're actually the people who will be able to give it the, the good restoration that it deserves. The same hope might be said for the, the Fort House as well. That was the house of William and Dionysia Fort, built in 1869. The Gaineses there were buying one of the houses of Historic Waco Foundation. HWF has had four houses open to the public for a number of decades. Those houses have struggled with attendance. The current generation does not see historic house visiting as the thing to do, as had been the case in the 50s and 60s I would and have. 70s. <laughs> me too. <laughs> it's but interesting to me. We're special yeah. <laughs> in, in that regard. I think part of it is that a lot of times historic entities like Historic Waco can struggle with telling some of the gripping stories that there's fear that telling the story of a slaveholding family who have a large plantation south of Waco in Downsville, that that's going to be controversial. I think it's kind of controversial not to talk about it myself. Mm. But after the war, Colonel Fort basically made a calculation of how much money was he going to be able to make on a plantation with free labor rather than his slave labor. And he concluded that things were so up in the air politically that it meant that his financials were going to be up in the air. He decided to move into Waco, become a merchant and a banker, and to build a house on 4th Street. And so that's why the Fort House was built. So it seems to me that's a pretty pretty good story right there, mm -hmm. that, that here he is uh, coming. And it's a very conservative house, and I mean that not in the political sense, but in the stylistic sense, mm -hmm. but that can say something about your mindset, your worldview. But I think that that's true of Texans by and large in the 1850s and 60s, that they tend not to be early adopters for the newest trendy house styles. They tend to like that tried and true Greek revival style. And you see that everywhere in Houston and Galveston, in Austin. The, the Texas governor's mansion is probably the most elegant expression of that. So the forts are doing that a decade after those even, and these are some of the last neoclassical houses before the next neoclassical revival in the early 20th century. That's a, a really interesting story. I think that, that it was, I'm so glad that, that Historic Waco Foundation acquired the house, restored it. I think it's a, a darn good house. Unfortunately, we had very little furniture from the Fort family or artifacts, so that the collection really didn't support the story. It tended to be, oh, dare I use the word generic. When it's a generic historic house that you're going to because historic houses are what we go to, it's not a very compelling reason. The, the conclusion that folks on the board of the Historic Waco Foundation have come to is that in spite of the fact that there are four houses, they're all very tightly dated, similar time period, all white upper-class families, so that the story is being told, <laughs> the same story is being told in each of each of the houses rather than ha having some way of differentiate themselves. And work's being done now to see if there's not a way 
of creating different stories for each of the houses. So that's all sort of deep background of saying there's a lot of potential in Fort House as a museum. It was potential that was never met in spite of the fact that Chip and Joanna Gaines are not going to be thinking of this as a museum, I don't assume, they certainly have the financial wherewithal to do a good restoration of the house, and not much has been done to it restoration-wise in recent years, and keeping up an old house is a a lifelong endeavor, In, in spite of the fact that I believe very strongly in the usefulness and significance of historic house museums. Sometimes you can have too many in one city. So we shall see how this <laughs> evolves over over the next few years. Before we get too far away from the castle, you said, I've read the plaque on the front of the house. What is kind of the story of the castle for those who may not know? I'm glad you're asking about that because it gets back to the sort of myths and unsubstantiated things that people can say about Waco houses. And that plaque is one of them <laughs> because the headline of that historic marker refers to the building as the Cottonland Castle. Which is kind of strange when you look at it because Mr. Abiel had nothing to do with cotton. It was not his business. <laughs> he was in ice and refrigerated storage, which doesn't seem quite as old-timey as cotton, I guess. The notion of calling it the Cottonland Castle really came up only when the application was made to the Texas Historical Commission for a historical marker. And there was concern on the part of one historical commission staffer that most Texas towns or cities have a really old house that people locally refer to it as the castle. And so she wanted to differentiate this example. And she's, she gave basically as two possibilities to the homeowners who were applying for the historical marker. You could call it the Waco Castle, or you could call it the Cottonland Castle. And they said, okay, we'll take Cottonland Castle. (laughs) It's like, well, it was the path of least resistance. It was something that they suggested. So right back at you, let's call it the Cottonland Castle. But it does leave people walking by with the impression that this was a, a family whose money came out of growing cotton or being in the cotton buying and exporting. And God knows there are a lot of people in Waco who made a lot of money exporting cotton. It just wasn't the people in that house. (laughs) In fact, I point out in the book that immediately across Austin Avenue from the castle is the Beach House, and it is a Mediterranean revival house. Roy Beach was a cotton exporter. (laughs) So you could very easily call that the Cottonland Villa, (laughs) not the Cottonland Castle, but the Cottonland Villa. And as I think about this more, there's a house down the way that's a colonial revival house from the 1920s, a very handsome example. That was the Swift House. And Mr. Swift was in the cotton exporting business. So you can have the Cottonland Colonial. There there are all sorts of ways of playing this, but I think that it was a well-meaning suggestion on the part of the Historical Commission that ended up muddying the history of the house. The Abeels had actually lived in Waco for a, a number of decades and had lived on 4th Street north of the downtown area in a nice Victorian cottage. It was a one-story Victorian house designed by W.W. Larmore, who was the leading Victorian architect in Waco. He had designed Old Main and uh, Georgia Burleson Hall at Baylor and did many houses, uh, many two-story houses, but also some attractive one-story cottages. So the Abeels lived there for quite a while, but decided in the 19-teens that they were ready to move out into suburbia. And suburbia at this point was Austin Avenue and 31st Street. 
doesn't really seem suburban <laughs> today, but. So should we rename the Cottonland Castle like the Ice House or something? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Cottonland Ice House. Oops, no, that doesn't work either, does that? <laughs> of course, there's a reason why Randy Lane is asking about <laughs> the Cottonland Castle. Oh, yeah. yes. Could there be some familial connection? Yeah, the architect of the castle was Roy E. Lane, who I gather is kin of yours. He's my great grandfather. Well, congratulations. <laughs> uh, you you have my respect just for as, that. That's my that only life. bona fides on a history podcast. <laughs> there you go. Well, working out. It's an interesting story and intersects with some of the mythology about the castle as well, which weirdly enough, the Abiel family promoted. The land on which the castle sits had been owned by John Tennant, who was a Scottish stonemason who came to Waco and became a successful contractor. He built the Provident Building, which used to be at 4th and Franklin Avenue, and many other buildings. Towards the end of his life, he bought that land, which was well outside the, the city, and ended up building some sort of home for himself. Tennant decided to move out of Waco proper and to buy land out in the country, build a small home, and to open a nursery. And by golly, that's what he did on that land between Austin and Franklin and 31st. The Beals were happy to suggest that somehow the castle had started as Tennant's house, because that put the date back into the 1890s. I've never been able to find any documentation that verifies that. And in fact, in the only city directories available for when John Tennant lived out there, his address was on Franklin Avenue hmm. rather than Austin. So it was sold to another person who I learned did not have the capacity to build a castle or anything close to a castle. The house that he did build is a small Victorian house, which is in the book as well. There's this elaborate legend about the house, but going through the house, I was looking very carefully to see if there was anything that proved that there were phases of construction. And I got to tell you, it looks like a single bill to me. And this may get back. I mean, the, the Abiles may have been participating in that older is better sort of story and actually obscuring the newness. They wanted it to be more traditional than it was. All that being said, it is a very impressive house. The connection with Roy Lane is not as much of a slam dunk as, as other houses, but I've looked at the, the Roy Lane papers in the Texas collection, and that includes a number of photographic albums that have sort of been disassembled. And it's quite interesting because as you look at the houses, that actually kind of creates ideas that these photos are just not just of houses, but they're specifically of houses that he designed, that he was sort of documenting them for his own interest. And the castle does show up in those papers. And he had been working as an architect in Waco, not quite a decade at that point in 1913, but relatively new arrival to Waco. Starting in 1910, a whole cluster of Roy Lane designs show up, including for the McClendon family, the Samuel Proctor McClendon, who was the oldest son of Jesse Sumter McClendon, who founded McClendon Hardware Store in Waco. That's a Roy Lane design from 1910 and one of the earliest Southern colonial style houses, which is sort of a sub-variant of the, the colonial, but with sort of a pronounced neoclassical portico. And that was actually on Austin Avenue in the 1800 block, sort of looking across the way at the Cooper Mansion. 
And it's kind of interesting because the McClendon house, Lane was really pointing the way to what, what was going to be happening in Waco houses for the next 20 to 30 years. And there's a sense in which the Cooper house, designed by Glenn Allen and Milton W. Scott, was really the summation of the Victorian era. It was like the last great Victorian house in Waco. So they're, they're kind of staring at each other across mm, Austin Avenue. Interesting. Is there any other Roy Lane buildings that are significant as far as homes go? Yes. One of the more surprising ones, and this actually came out of uh, studying the, the photo albums in the, the Texas collection, he designed a house for Judge Harvey Mac Ritchie, which is on Colonial, it's between 18th and 19th. And that was done roughly the same time as the, as the castle. And it's interesting because it has a number of traits that link it to the prairie style, which, of course, was the early style of Frank Lloyd Wright, but also of any number of other architects working in Chicago at the time. And so that was one of the more progressive houses to, to be built in Waco in the 19-teens. And the interesting thing there is that the photo that's in the Roy Lane papers is not a photo of the house. It's a photograph of an architectural drawing. And so, you know, anybody could take a picture of a house and here, Mr. Lane, put this in your photo album. Yeah. But, but taking a photo of a rendering that shows a perspective view of the house as the architect designed it puts it on another level. Mm. And so, so that's a very, very interesting one. So before we get too far away, you're saying that the castle for sure, in your mind at least, was a single build and that the historical marker makes it sound like it was started and then unfinished and then Roy finished it. Yes and yes. <laughs> that is to say the, the historical marker basically follows along with the legend that that was published in the Waco newspaper in late 1913, which was basically a very large spread about the house and the family and celebrating the, the whole thing. At the same time that it was sort of generating in kind of vague terms the backstory of the house, it was also mentioning some things. When we look at the castle, we sort of think about the medieval associations of a house with, you know, battlements across the top. It looks like you're ready for the, the next war to break out or <laughs> whatever. But in that Waco newspaper article, they mentioned that the, the dining room is actually inspired by the architecture of the Vienna Secession, which is progressive architecture in Austria of the, the preceding decade. Mm. So, and again, this is not something that your standard builder in Waco, Texas is going to know about. That takes a professionally trained architect who's familiar with with very recent developments in in architecture and the Vienna secession was was really kind of a forerunner to the Bauhaus and the international style that that comes to to fruition in the 1920s traveling farther north on Austin what is the Cotton Palace bed and breakfast, which recently closed. My family is under the impression that Roy did that as well. Is that true? Yes, it is. Okay. The Cotton Palace bed and breakfast was definitely a Roy Lane design. And the reason that we know that, and that's the what I call in the book the Johnson Staten House, which is 1910, okay. is that there is a perspective drawing by Roy Lane of the house, which matches very closely the, the house as it exists today. So that you can just kind of Pull it up, and by golly, there it is. So that's the kind of slam dunk that you really like. And there's actually a similar perspective sketch of the Sam and Mabel McClendon 
house, which was just down the block at 810. Also, I forget whether that one's signed or if it's just in the the sketches in the style of Lane. But that's one of the things, I don't know that people really say it very much, but Roy Lane was an extremely skilled artist in terms of creating these images, which is very useful when you're trying to persuade a client to hire you, (laughs) you know, here's the way your new house is going to look. Isn't it gorgeous? And the better an artist you are, the more likely you are to to reel the the client in. In fact, something that does not get into the book, but I've been studying since then, there is a point right around 1910, give or take a year or two on either side, that Milton Scott, who was a great architect slash businessman, who could really reel in the clients because he was sort of hail fellow, well met, and and all. Right around 1910, all of a sudden, there's a whole set of his buildings that have these really lovely perspective drawings. It's like, where did this come from? This is not, <laughs> this is not what you expect. You're not going to get a pretty drawing. You're going to get a very solid, on time, on budget building dog on it. There is one fleeting reference to Roy Lane working in the office of Milton Scott for the Temple Road F. Shalom synagogue. And Scott designed the second Temple Road F. Shalom in 1910. And there's this lovely exterior perspective drawing that I have a feeling Roy Lane came in and did, in a very short period of time, several drawings that really helped communicate a vision of what that building would look like to the potential clients. I was going to say, when I first got to town and I was trying to do some family research that Milton Scott also came up as kind of like his contemporary appear in the area. Is that kind of how it is? Yes. He's got a longer answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's the short. The short answer is yes. Milton W. Scott is someone who comes to Waco in the very beginning of the 20th century, ends up working as a draftsman for W.W. Larmore, the old Victorian architect who was still working away, but ends up pairing up with Glenn Allen and designs the Artesian Manufacturing and Bottling Company, what we now think of as the the home of Dr. Pepper. Allen and Scott design the First Baptist Church, which still stands. And Glenn Allen signed the blueprints for the Madison Cooper Mansion by himself, which seems to suggest that they had sort of separated as as a partnership. But after Glenn Allen left for California and worked there for the rest of his life, Scott sort of ended up doing all of the subsequent changes to the Cooper Mansion and ended up claiming it as his own Mm. uh, in the the 1930s. Glenn Allen was far away in California, and he wasn't going to notice, wasn't going to to care. So that's a little... (laughs) No internet back then. Right, yeah. Oh, it would be so easy today. (laughs) But so the architectural drawings are just signed by Glenn Allen. But Milton Scott had several partners in the architectural business, had a number of draftsmen who worked for him. Scott and Pearson, we mentioned earlier, designed the the McGill House and others. He ended up finally going on his own, and it became the Milton W. Scott Company. And even at that point, there were young draftsmen who were working for him, and that became their sort of launching pad for going out onto their own. And that included lesser-known architects like Herman F. Kaysen and E. McIver Ross, who I sort of ferreted out some examples of their work in the book. I think that there was a, a rivalry between Milton W. Scott and Roy Lane, and Lane ended up moving to Dallas 
I believe that was in the 30s. You might be able to tell me. 30s or 40s is what I've heard, yeah. Yeah, and he actually did some work during the Great Depression for the Civilian Conservation Corps. They were doing a project in the vicinity of White Rock Lake, and Roy Lane designed the barracks where basically the CCC workers were living. So it was, it was basically military-esque barracks and other facilities, uh, dining halls and things of, of that sort. And those sort of opportunities were part of the New Deal idea of providing support for architects who had not that much to design in the, the Great Depression. Things were so bad financially that few things were being built, which made it very difficult for people involved in the construction industry. So Roy Lane, but other architects did work in that. They also did work in the Historic American Building Survey. That was the entire point of that, was so that unemployed architects could go out and document historic buildings. Excellent. There's lots of interesting buildings and homes around town. What can you tell me about 2114 Austin Avenue? 2114 is relatively early house for Austin Avenue. The overall appearance of the building is what I refer to in the book as an American Foursquare. Essentially, it's sort of given away by the fact that the footprint of the building is squarish. There's a hipped roof that's somewhat close to being a pyramid, if not exactly a pyramid. It's a very substantial example of that form. Waco does have a pretty fair number of American four squares. 2114 Austin Avenue was originally built for Alan Sanford, and he was the general attorney for the Amicable Life Insurance Company. And that was at a point where they were about to build their building, what we now know and love as the Alico Building. And Sanford had earlier been a mayor of Waco. So he was a pretty prominent person in Waco society. Interestingly enough, he didn't stay that long in the house. It was finished around 1912, 1913, something, something along those lines. By 1917, it was owned by Edward C. Barrett, who was a vice president at the Cooper Grocery Company. You know, again, being a vice president at a major company like that puts a house like that in pretty elite company. The, the fact that it's on Austin Avenue, that was a pretty distinguished address in addition to that. And having people like Madison Cooper uh, living in, and the McClendon family uh, starting in that the, the house at, at 1810, but they end up building further up the avenue as well. Austin Avenue really has been an elite address in Waco for a very long time. The next door neighbor was Pat Neff, who had been governor of Texas, and also at the time he was living uh, next to 2114, was the president of Baylor University. So he's a very important person in, in Waco history and in Texas history. So we want to mention again the book, which is a wonderful book. Pick up this book, uh, Historic Homes of Waco, Texas, and Dr. Kenneth Hayfertit has been generous with his time today to record this session. There's somewhere we could talk about. There's 120 houses in here, so yeah. we could have gone house by house. <laughs> but Dr. H did a great job giving us kind of an overview of the landscape here. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you for asking me. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. 
Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. In the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'll walk straight in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El Bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio